the weekend variety wireless Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5, probably the most well-known piece of music on the planet, in the Western world. Anyway, you'd think it would have to be. If it isn't, I'd be interested in hearing suggestions for what may beat it. Everyone knows the da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da bit, and beautifully on The Simpsons. They took the piss as well. Have a listen to this. everybody going? The symphony has just started. So? We already heard the dum-dum-dum-dum. The rest is just filler. Overplayed and maybe underrated? I don't know. There's a thing called Unwrap the Music, which happens on a pretty regular basis a few times a year. The Auckland Philharmonic Orchestra, with a conductor and a specialist, take you through a famous piece of music. I've been to a few of these, and they're great. They're relaxed. They're not toffee-nosed. You get to find out about the music as well as hear it, because you're walked through it. You're taken by the hand. And a regular visitor, the man behind this one, Richard Gill, conducting and talking us through Beethoven's Fifth. Hello, Richard. Hi, Graham. How are you? Yeah, not bad. That Simpsons thing is hilarious because I can remember when I was teaching high school back in the 60s a million years ago, I actually did the first movement about having five with a group of year nine kids. It was a textbook lesson. Everything was, you know, on the board and all lovely themes we sang and blah, blah, blah. And then I played it. And then at the end of it, I stupidly said to the kids, what do you think of it? And this kid put up his hand and he said, well... It's the same old crap over and over. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> the kids in the class all agreed with him. And that was an amazing answer. And it was a really big lesson for me because from that moment on, I changed the way I taught music based on that kid's reaction. Okay. That's how they heard it. They heard it the same, the same way the Simpsons did. The rest is filler. <laughs> all right. Okay, let's get on to Ludwig van Beethoven, Symphony Number no. 5. I can't think of another a piece of music or a strain that is more recognisable in the Western world. I think I'm right there. What do you think? I think you're right. I think a pretty close second would be Carmen Barana, the off piece, you know, the bum, 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 bum. Um, bah, 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 that's been used for commercials left, right and centre. But there's no question that that opening theme mm. of the first movement is universally known. Maybe the introduction to A Hard Day's Night, that one chord as well. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think it has become so well known? I wish I could answer that question in any way truthfully. I've got ideas about it. I think some of it is due to the fact that it was the uh, Morse code sign for victory. So we heard a lot of us in World War Two that d- 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 three dots and a dash is a V oh. in Morse code. And that was very, very well known. I also think it's a fantastic piece. It's a really, really good symphony. 
people get the fact that it's good. Wonderful pieces of music and exhilarating, glorious sound. So I don't think that necessarily answers the question, mm. but it might con- you contribute a bit more information as to why it's so incredibly popular. It's fun to think about, actually, and to discuss. There probably isn't a, a dead set answer. We can't scientifically work it out with a test tube, even a chalkboard. But you see, like S- Symphony 3 was the yeah. huge breakthrough, Eroica. Yep. Symphony yep. 7, to me, is much prettier and more appealing, but Symphony 5 still gets through, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Look, I think 3 is a spectacular work. After 3, every work treats another aspect of symphonic style. By the time he gets to 9, he really doesn't feel the symphony is his metier. The that I think Beethoven finds himself at home in completely is the string quartet. Yeah. It is fascinating with Beethoven and Symphony Number no. 9. I've read a few biographies of Beethoven. It's kind of, I'm, I'm interested in someone that, that cantankerous and brilliant. He regretted making it choral. I read that somewhere and I thought, yes, I regretted you made it choral as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say... The Ninth Symphony is not up there on my bucket list, let me tell you. Me either, but they love it in Brussels, don't they? They love it in Brussels. They <laughs> big type in Brussels. But part of it is because it's sort of played to death as well. And it's a long haul. And by the time you get to the last movement, you think, mm, I think it should be dinner. I'm, I'm ready for dinner. Yeah. So, hey, great piece. But if I were choosing a Baton Symphony to play to listen to, this is my order. Seven, four, three, yeah. eight, yeah. two, yeah. One. Yeah. Five. Whoa. That's my order. Okay. Five being lasty pops. Five bestie pops. Oh, um, gotcha. You know, in the sense that five is, <laughs> I think the whole world knows five. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Okay. I under- what I wanted to do was understand your reasoning. You're not rubbishing it. No, no, I'm not rubbishing it. It's a fabulous piece. I mean, when you say, you know, I've got a priority list, that's a priority list of the greats of the greats. It's like mm. having caviar and followed by quail tongue and aspic and then, you know, mm. a bit of beautiful sushi and a bit of glorious sorbet and some gorgeous dessert. It's all lovely. That's all marvellous. You're just sort of, you know, having a beautiful time at the top of the tree. Okay. Explain how these unwrapped shows work because I think it's really important for people who may not have previously thought that a classical concert might be for them. It might just be. It is just for them. The people who think it's not for them are the very people it is for. I talk about the way the music is written and the way it is written for the instruments and we talk about the features of the musical style, what the composer is doing, how the parts go together, what's interesting rhythmically, what's interesting melodically, what's interesting harmonically. Because we've got the Auckland Philomania on stage and they are amazing, they just go exactly where I ask them to go every single time and they completely understand what it's about. They completely get it. They are the demonstration which is immediate and you can't get it better than that. It's live, it's instant and people understand it and people hear things differently once they know what they're listening for. Someone said it's about demystifying and it's not. It's not about demystifying because no one can demystify. No one can do that. Technically speaking, you really can't speak about music. The 
because it's abstract, you know? Mm. And so people have views and they're entitled to their individual view to like, dislike, appreciate it how they wish. We hope they all enjoy it. And even if they don't enjoy it, at the unwrapped level, we're trying to understand the technical sides of things, the way things work, the way things go together to make this extraordinary music work. And the feedback we get from the audiences is they enjoy having the music talked about in this way. Yeah, and it isn't sit down and shut up for a very long time. I mean, it has more of a relaxed feel because you're addressing the audience and saying, have a look at this. And if we have the strings, do a bit of that. Did you notice over there, Mr. Horns, can we try that, please? Exactly. That's exactly right, Graham. Yeah, that works. That's a lovely thing. Good one. Because listeners will probably r- realise there are lots of things I like to th- shove down people's throats, maybe a little too much. One of them is definitely that so-called classical music is for other people. I really yeah. don't think it is. No, it is for everybody. The classical music has this terrible barrier. It doesn't. No. The idea is to learn about it is also cool. Yeah. It's okay not to know stuff. Yeah. Nobody in the world knows everything about classical music there is to know. But the great thing about music is we keep finding out more and more and more about music all the time. You don't have to no. like it either. No, you don't, but no. you can appreciate it. Part yeah. of it is to understand it and say, okay, I understand that a bit more. Mm. I don't like it anymore, but I understand it a bit more. Some people say, I really get that now. I didn't think I'd like that, but I really get it. Yeah. So there's something for everybody. Yeah. I've had vicious arguments about Marla. There we go. Yeah. You never win those. Just, no. <laughs> Just at the bus stop. What do you make of Marla's fat? Bloody rubbish. Okay, anyway. <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, the third symphony we alluded to, anyway, it's this big, bold, bursting thing where it's being described as the artist being put at the centre of the music, which is something we take for granted these days with a singer-songwriter, mm. isn't it? Mm. And, and it kind of changed the landscape of this type of music. He started apparently on da-da-da-da pretty much immediately after th- Symphony Number no. 3. So what bits are the earliest? The fifth was written between 1807 and 1808. It was actually on the board for quite a long time. The third marked a big explosion in formal structure for Beethoven. Mm. That was an extraordinary premiere. And they said that Beethoven's symphony would be forgotten because it was rubbish and it was discordant and ugly and awful, whereas the Anton Abel symphony was marvellous and we could understand every note. And we got it, and so it was fabulous. Therefore, his will last forever and the Beethoven will be forgotten. Well, that shows you how stupid those critics were or how wrong they were or how ridiculous their judgments were because it was the third that put Beethoven on the symphonic path we look at now and say, my God, what he was doing was unbelievable. In seven years' time, after the premiere of the fifth and uh, sixth symphonies, 1808, Beethoven was not what you'd call happy in Vienna. Mm. He would not be writing movie script called Happy in Vienna Beethoven's Life. He was broke. He was looking for money to try and survive because he didn't have a position. Mm. So he was living on commissions as much as he could and he wrote to the civil authorities in Vienna and asked for a commission to produce an opera every year. No one wrote back as far as we know. Mm. So he used to do charity concerts 
on the idea that if you did a charity concert, you'd get the hall next time you want to do a concert for free. Mm. It was tough. Like It was really, really tough. And he hated the Viennese. But he stayed there, but he hated them. <laughs> He was not talking about the world's happiest person. Yeah, it's been said that the greatest achievements of Austria is maintaining that Beethoven was Viennese and Hitler was German. (laughs) Beethoven's actually Flemish, but don't let that worry anybody. Okay. What do you make, then, of Beethoven as a person? Well, look, I think Beethoven was an extraordinary person. I think he had... He obviously had serious issues. I mean, you start off life as absolutely obsessed with music and you find you're going deaf. How would you feel? Mm. I think that can explain a lot about Beethoven. I also think that he would love to have had some sort of love life that was stable. Mm. Apparently, he was not the most attractive person on earth, but so what? Yeah. You know, he was grumpy, and he, you know, he was a bit of a growly teddy bear, not to use too harsh a word yeah. or term. He also had difficulties in speaking to people without being incredibly blunt, yep. and of course, he couldn't hear people. So, how you know he suspected they were talking about him or? They didn't like him or they didn't understand him. I mean, that whole death thing would have been awful. Yeah. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the music in the fifth. Gosh, he has a hard time getting it to end. What is he doing there? Trying to... Is it over? ends that happen all the time. What's he yeah, doing? Have, yeah, I think he's pushing the boundaries with, with what we call cadences, pushing the boundary with closing ideas. But you do remember it. You do remember how it ends. Yeah. You stay focused. You don't suddenly switch off. It was the idea that you could extend this ending. And this is part of the formal approach that Beethoven used. This concept of how you extend musical ideas was a very important part of formal development. And Beethoven was a master of that. And so the ends are just sort of part of that thinking. The premiere of the fifth was along with the premiere of the sixth. What a hell of a show that would be. This was part of Beethoven's payback. He got a theatre in Vienna, 22nd of December, 1808. And being Beethoven, he just went crackers. They heard the Fifth Symphony. They heard the Sixth Symphony. They had the Fourth Piano Concerto, which was performed for the first time in Vienna with Beethoven playing. Then they had an aria, and then Beethoven was going to do an improvisation (laughs) just for kicks. And then a finale, and the finale was the Choral Fantasia. The program would have been over four hours, maybe five hours long, in freezing cold halls, the middle of December. Like, can you imagine how it would have been snowy and freezy and unbelievably awful? And I 
guess you'd have to say the evening was pretty much of a disaster. I heard that one of the pieces he had to stop and start again. That, that's not a good look. That's true. That is absolutely, you heard correctly. That was the Coral Fantasia. And the orchestra were cantankerous. The orchestra were angry with him over a concert. You can imagine how they felt. And everything was incredibly under-rehearsed. So it would have sounded pretty ordinary. Mm. But from that, the sixth symphony, the fifth symphony, they are played all over the world. Can you imagine what Beethoven would have earned if he'd been on royalties after that premiere? Right. How amazing would those royalties have been? Yeah. How does it get picked up and how soon after the, fair to say, less than perfect, bloody disastrous first performances go, how soon after that did it get picked up and appreciated? Well, very, very gradually, people programmed Beethoven later in the 19th century, and then the German orchestras picked up these symphonies because they were all published. So there were published editions that travelled the country, and these orchestras started to play them. And then people realised, of course, gradually with the, the repetition of the music, that this is pretty solid stuff. These performances grew throughout Europe and America and the United Kingdom, and it became came very, very popular to program Beethoven often, and it still is. In Sydney, for example, we've had the complete cycle of symphonies twice, and it's barely the end of March. Wow. So in 1827, when he died, yep. would the fifth have been famous then? No. Oh, not really. Various people who knew Beethoven pushed the barrow for him. That was a wonderful thing. Publishers and friends said people should know about this music and sort of sent scores out to orchestras, etc., and people played them. So that's basically how it happened. But it happened after his death. Right. It didn't happen as if, you know, we're going to have a fabulous Bad Heaven Festival and it's all going to be marvellous. That, that was not like that. But he didn't die in obscurity. 10,000 people apparently turned up to the funeral. They re- realised they'd lost someone. The number was actually higher than that. Oh, bloody hell. But, apparently. But as he got towards the end, lots and lots and lots of people visited him because they realised that this guy was probably yeah. pretty cool and a seriously good composer. And there were lots of influential people who around the end of his career realised that this guy had lots and lots and lots to say. Okay. I love having an expert on a leash and they can't get away. (laughs) At the end of the fourth movement, it's got all that false ending bit again. But something I noticed, there's a bit that significantly speeds up. Yes. And it reminds me of gypsy music. Yep. Okay, good. I'm not going to argue with you on that. Austro-Hungarian influence, yeah. all that sort of thing. I mean, Mozart and Haydn also were fond of gypsy music and folk music. I loved the... That little bit there. 
Mm. Absolutely crack a bit. But you sort of need it. We can say this about the fifth as a little bit of a secret. It's a work in which that little opening theme does appear in different guises. Okay, because the fifth is so well known, do orchestras steer away from it because it's overplayed or does it get performed more for bums on seats? Both of those. You could say it's a good works program because it's a popular work. You could also say we won't be doing Bad Heaven 5 for another three or four seasons. So it's a matter of getting artistic planners to agree that this symphony is worth doing. My view is 5 and 6 should be programmed together. That would be an amazing program. Yeah. That's all that 1808 music. He was 38. It was midlife-ish. He's at the peak of his powers. Like, and, and we know at that stage she was getting better and better and better and it, and it was going to get better. That's the extraordinary thing. Yeah. The music became more intense, more complex, more creative, more imaginative, more powerful. There is no hint that he loses his powers. No, it gets better. It does. In my view, it does. Yeah, it actually gets better and better and better. One last thing, and I'm putting you on the spot here. It's dreadful of me. I should have forwarded you this question earlier. No, go ahead. Beethoven, you have 10 minutes with him. What would you ask him? Oh, are you kidding? I would ask him such a lot of stuff. I would ask him about piano sonata opus 10, number 2 in D major. What was he thinking there when he shifted keys? I would ask him about the fourth piano concerto opening. What was he thinking there? I would ask him about opus 133 string quartet. What was he thinking there? I would want to know his approach to Fidelio, whether he considered Fidelio as a set of rhythmic variations, which I think it is. I would ask him about the partial symphony on the storm scene. It would go on and on and on. I mean, I, I <laughs> in 10 minutes, we wouldn't even scratch the surface. I've got thousands of questions for Beethoven. Thanks so much, Richard. Really good fun. And Thanks, I've... Graham. That's, we'll come and say hello. I'll stop short of stage diving or streaking, OK? <laughs> that could be fun. We've been speaking with Richard Gill. Richard, thanks and all the best. Thanks, Graham. Da 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 da. <laughs> Goodbye. And if you've just tuned in, you've been hearing an interview with Richard Gill. He died last week. What a champion he was for music, and he really took the stuffiness out of classical music. Bless him. What a great musical educator and a champion. And he was on this show quite a bit. So thoughts to his family and friends. He will be sorely missed. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. I think you could call it a landmark publication. Uh, these sort of books don't come out very often, especially for Enviro News. Uh, New Zealand Natural History is what we concentrate on, so you may be able to guess a theme. It's called Bird yeah. Stories, A History yeah. of the Birds of New Zealand. 
and on the line, Jeff Norman, who's put it all together. I don't know if I should call you an author for this sort of thing, because there's a lot more than just the writing. This is gathering of an amazing amount of information and imagery. Yeah, it was over a fair, fair period of time. Well, what it is is the history of these birds, the human history as well as the natural history, and you don't skimp on either. Everything from wacky marketing ideas using our birds to the very serious thing of evolutionary paths and how long did it put take to put together anyway, Jeff? Well, I, I worked on it over a period of about five years, but I have a day job and I do other stuff I, I produce books for other people, so it was definitely um, a, a part-time effort and obviously got more concentrated as we got nearer to the sort of publication deadlines. Was there an anguish over how to approach it? Because it's an interesting division. It's almost like a, a naturalist's book uh, and the way it's divided up. You've done it by types of bird. Um, I wanted to put it together in, in the same order as you come across the birds if you were buying a looking at a field guide or something like that. Right. But obviously, um, probably not so much emphasising the ornithology of the birds, but rather their, you know, their history and, and sort of cultural sort of background and so on. Some fabulous human history as well. Isn't it amazing in there? So some things I haven't seen before about how Kiwis were depicted over time. And the first person to freaking draw one. Yeah, and um, I was actually very fortunate because I went over to the UK last year and that same skin that is in that, that drawing and also in the second drawing in that chapter where they restuffed it about 15 years later and had another crack at it, uh. that same skin is in a museum in Liverpool and I actually was able to go in and actually handle it and have a look at it. So it's still still there, you know, over 200 years later. Wow, because that's, uh, if people don't know, it's that one where the Kiwi is standing bolt up upright, basically, isn't it? Which uh, yes. they don't do. Yeah, I think they called it um, Pinguinus Australis, so they, they thought it was a type of penguin at yeah. first. Um, and, yeah. Okay, the national en emblem, also in marketing, and it's not surprising really, is it? Uh, even a Rolling Stones picture, that was a good find. Yeah, well, it had a wee bit of resonance to me because I actually was at that concert, uh -huh. which probably, date, probably dates me a bit, but um, yeah. And the guy, the guy who did the poster is still a graphic artist in Melbourne, and I, I wrote to him and asked him if you know if I could possibly use it. And, uh, um, yeah. Okay, uh, tell us what the poster looks like. We can't see it on the radio. It's, it's basically a, a very kind of 1970s looking Kiwi um, having a peck at a, at that, the Rolling Stones logo, which is you know like a sort of flower on the ground. You know the the, the Mick Jagger lips uh, type thing. A lot of it is unsurprisingly uh, full of heartbreak as well because we have yeah. some extinct birds so many close to making it but didn't yeah 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 Stevens Island Wren tell us about that and myth versus fact it was probably it was much more widely spread, um, obviously previously, but its last kind of refuge was really Stevens Island. Um, I mean, the myth is that it was the um, the lighthouse keeper had keeper had a cat, um, and and that cat was sort of responsible for the for the extinction of the bird, basically. But um, the fact I think is that it was just um, you know there were there were cattle, there were farms there, there were people. I think I can't remember. I think there were about eleven or twelve people living on the island mm. and I'm sure the cat played a part of it but it was more just the overall change in, in habitat and, and the other animals there as well. But the heartbreak is that it was the, the first one to be properly identified was the last one. 
It just about was, yeah. And it was also the the, the scene or the, the cause of the you know, one of um, the famous sort of stouches between Buller and Rothschild. They both wanted to describe it, and Buller held held his up a little bit because he wanted um, Coolermans to do the picture. And um, while he was waiting, sort of Rothschild um, jumped in and, and described it in, a, in, a, in another publication. So he was the one who was able to name it. Mm. Well, you have done that book on Buller's birds, the reproduction yeah. of the Coolermans um, drawings. I, I could talk all day about Walter Buller in a disparaging yeah. way. I, I, I'm not buying the revisionists, having read a bit about him. Your thoughts on Buller? Because he features in here, of course, even a special little yeah. thing on him. Yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm probably a, a little more sympathetic towards him than your... I don't want to leave anyone, I don't want to leave anyone behind. He was uh, an ornith, a naturalist in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, he was extremely highly regarded. Uh, he fought very hard for that high regard as well and mm. enjoyed it. One of his uh, scientific pieces of equipment was a gun. Uh, it was his primary one and he sold skins to birds to rich people. Okay. Yeah. Uh, try and save him from there, Jeff. Okay. Well, you could probably say the same about Richard Henry. Uh, Richard Henry shot Kakapo. He tried to sell him to Rychek, but Rychek wouldn't give him enough money. <laughs> um, Richard Henry also operated, he operated a boat um, down in um, uh, Tianau there, and one of his contractors were, um, were parties taking stoats over to the other side of Lake Manapuri to release them. And he grew to regret that. He did. And, and, and I guess I'm not really criticising him, but I, I feel that like Buller, um, he was a man of his time, and it was often probably a lot more complicated than it seems to, than it seems to us from you know a hundred years further on. Mm. I, I think I also feel that, um, and I'm certainly not talking about you, Graham, but I do think that people sometimes get a little bit smug when they look at people like Buller from mm -hmm. the 21st century and say, well, you know, you know, this guy went out and shooting all these birds, but in fact, you look at what's happened to our birds. You know, in the in the hundred years or so since he's died, um, nothing much has really changed. You know, and um, so I and and Buller was certainly when you look at the other scientists of the time, you you, you, you know Sir Julius von Haast and yeah. um, you know Hectors and so on. I mean, this whole thing of um, trying to get qualifications and recognition wasn't just confined to Buller. No. Um, and he was the other thing that was unusual about him was that he was he was a colonial he was born in New Zealand and um, most of these other guys came from probably were probably better educated than he was and they'd come from Europe and England and he, he was he was pretty much he was patronized a fair bit by some of these people and I think he was probably quite conscious of that as well mm. although he did have the opportunity did he not to capture a bunch of huia and put them on an island but he decided to sell them overseas instead <laughs> That's yeah. That's that's the st that is the story. Um, there was uh, there's no. Uh, yeah, there, it was suspected that he did that, although that the Huia never did actually turn up overseas, so nobody's quite sure what happened to them in the end. But um, yeah, look, I mean, I'm not. Yeah, he did. He was. You know, there was some sort of duplicity there. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, he was also you know sending laughing owls away and overseas as well. Let's um, talk about the laughing owl then. But yeah. We'll move on from this, that disgraceful <laughs> Huia affair. I mean, those. It was Seven Huia, wasn't it? And they went somewhere. No, oh, no, 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 it wasn't. It was. I think it was just a pair. Oh, and went somewhere. Yeah, yeah. 
and um, they, yeah, no one knows quite where they went. I no. think they suspected that they might have been heading towards Rothschild in, in the UK, but I don't think... Um, they didn't he, make it to Carpetty Island, put it that way. No, no, they did make it to the London Zoo. Actually, not those particular ones, but right. there were t- on a couple of occasions who were live who were in the London Zoo. Isn't that a thing to yeah. know? How bizarre, <laughs> how utterly yeah. bizarre. Okay, mm. the laughing owl, an underappreciated extinct bird and one of those mm. so tantalising we have a clear and very good photograph of. Yes, yes, yeah. In fact, there's, uh, well, uh, there's a couple of photos of the live bird, yeah. It's history. How did it disappear? We're talking about the heartbreak extinctions here. Well, it, it, again, I guess it was just the you know the loss of habitat and so on, and it was it was both in the North and South Islands. I, I think the last one was in the seen in the South Island in the I, I think the early part of the twentieth century, and um, yeah, I think it, it was just um, probably just predated on and, and, and losing its habitat. Mm. Um, they've actually decided more recently that, in fact, it's very, very closely rated, uh, related to the uh, to the Ruru, to the Moorport. Mm. And they think possibly it's a wee bit like the Takahe and the Pukeko and that its ancestor was probably quite similar to the Moorport and came over to New Zealand from Australia and, like a lot of birds, got a lot bigger. And, um, well, it wasn't flightless, but it did spend quite a lot of time on the ground, which probably didn't help much. No. We'll go back back to the wrens. Uh, We can ramp up the heartbreak, uh, if you like, uh, for the bush wren because we not only have a photograph, it's in colour and it's not wasn't yeah. taken that long ago and no. there's not much chance of seeing one is there no no well those were the ones on the big south cape island and that was where the um the rats invaded the island there and there were a few scientists down there it's it was it's interesting because um i think even well into the 20th century um our scientists weren't that convinced that the disappearance of the birds was they thought it was something that was going on anyway and maybe maybe humans sort of hurried it up a little bit but mm. um, so it wasn't until 1964 that you had sort of some younger scientists and people like Don Merton and so on who were actually prepared to go down there and, and take drastic action and move them off the island which they did with the um, the wren in the South Island Saddleback and yeah. they, they managed to save the Saddleback but not the wren no. That, fo- that photo, by the way, by Don Merton is, is actually a bird. That, it was taken after the bird died. I think he actually sort of perched it in the tree and, and sort of took a photograph of it. But, um, kind yeah, of died long of ago. It's looking all right. Yeah, I think it was probably fairly... Re- they, because they did actually capture some, but they just weren't able to, to, to hang on to them. Oh, really? Is that it? Mm, so it's I a think, dead yeah. bird perched in the tree? Yeah. I th- I, he did release some. I think they did release them on, on you know, on a, on a nearby island, but they, they just didn't, they weren't enough. And they, no. and they, I think they were seen for a year or two after that, and then they, they just disappeared, basically. An, an extinction on our watch. But the, um, Don, it was, it seems strange now to think of it, but it was a revolutionary thinking that Don Merton came up with, saying, do something. Yes. Because the, the policy was do nothing. Yeah, or it was to maybe, you know, get rid of a few predators, but not really sort of actively sort of interfere and, you know, move them to different places and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And I, I think it did come out of that feeling that they were, they were fairly doomed anyway. And um, 
Um, in fact, I think it was Charles Fleming was one of the first people who actually did say, no, look, wait on, all these birds that have gone extinct in the last few thousand years, it's because of us, you know. It's not because of something that was happening earlier on or something to do with their DNA. Mm. It was it was, it was, was humans. Okay. The hooey could have been saved, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes. I, it, it, yeah, it certainly could have been, but... Um, you know, it did seem over, over sort of the last 15 years or so, it was pretty, um, it seemed on a, on a sort of a bit of a one-way trip, really. Mm. Um, it was, it seemed to have been seen a lot later than the, you know, the official kind of demise, which I think was about 1907. Mm. Um, there was a guy who saw them in, um, up in Golan's Gully behind, Welling, uh, behind Eastbourne there. And uh, in about 1924... He saw a pair, and he went to the Dominion Museum and um, said he had seen them. And he offered to take the director of the museum in to have a look at them, or one of the senior people. And um, nobody was actually prepared to go. Well, only a very they were only going to dispatch someone very junior to go with them. So he said, "Well, I'm not interested. I want you know, I want one of your top people." And um, and so they never did. And a few years later, they went in by themselves to try and find it, and um, and they never did. Oh, heavens. So, yeah. We're speaking yeah. with Jeff Norman, the compiler, editor, author of Bird Stories. It's a huge publication. Um, to give you an idea, this is probably the best way. Uh, I'm going to drop it just on, on the desk. It's, <laughs> it's, it's heavy. It's about 1.8 kilos, I was told. Or... Hardback, beautifully done. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen an array of uh, images of our native birds in uh, such a variety of them in one publication before and something that is kind of weird and shocking. I'm going to say albino huia and kokako drawn Hmm. by our our friend Kulamans from many years ago. Um, I know they're not exactly albino, but they're they're white versions of these birds. What's going on? What a thing. I, I, people are not exactly sure where those two pictures came from, and they're both from different ones. One's held at the Turnbull, one's held at Tapapa. Mm. But um, it, one of them certainly came from Buller's estate, and I think, um, and they're, they're unlike, you know, the other pictures that he did for Buller for his, you know, for his books and so on. So I think they were they were actually watercolours that were commissioned by Buller, um, and of course, Buller like from life, or did he make this stuff up? Oh, no, Kuhlman, he would have made it up. I mean, because Kuhlman's never, I mean, he never actually got to New Zealand. So he would have, yeah, no, definitely not from life. From an imaginary uh, elf. Oh, well, he he might have had the, when you say from life, from life, uh, possibly it was a specimen that he copied. Right. uh, Yeah, I don't don't know. Oh, my thrust is, were there, I know it's inaccurate, but I'll use the Mm. word, albino ones, white ones. Yes. Yes, probably. I mean, the same as any other bird, really. Huh? Um, yeah. Far out. Okay. Oh, I heard a story from John Kendrick. John Kendrick, yeah. listeners, is most famous, and you would have heard his work for sure. <laughs> National Radio, The Bird Call. For, for years and years, they're pretty much exclusively his bird calls that he recorded. And uh, mm. with his amazing striding gait over yeah. um, our landscape, he did some amazing work record- making the sound recordings of our native birds. Mm. I interviewed him before he died. And, 
he, he stands up on his hind legs, which are very, very strong, and his yes. shoulders go back uh, when he said, I'm pretty sure I heard a peel peel. And he reckoned he yeah. heard it in the order weather. Okay, yeah. Um, no, I'm going, even with John Kendrick, you, you've got to go, yeah, right. But this is John Kendrick. Yes, yeah. What yeah. do you make I, of that? Because the peel peel, well, another I, one of our sad ones that may possibly yeah. have been savable. Mm. I I think I heard him say, with a similar thing that he'd seen a, a North was it a North Island bush wren as well. He talked about mm. having seen that. But look, um, yeah, if there's anybody who's worth believing, it's John Kendrick, really, isn't it? Um, he, I mean, he was um, yeah, he had that huge experience, and of course, he was very involved with Don Merton and so on. And I think he was involved with the rescue of the um, mm. you know the saddlebacks in, in the South Island, and he certainly was in, in the ones in the North Island as well. Yeah. Well, it's stories like that that um, mm. kind of make you go, what? Yeah. Uh, because that wouldn't have been that long ago, maybe in the 50s, um, yeah. when he was, yeah, you know, things can hide. Do you have hope for the South Island Kōkako? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, again, there's some fairly reputable people who have actually seen it and, 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 and heard it. Um, I suppose... Well, I've got hope that there's a few specimens around, but I don't. I don't know how much that means. You know, there's enough of, to actually sort of breed and maintain a population. No, <laughs> no, no, exactly. Uh, however, they are. I mm. don't think it's going to be doing well. No, no, oh. no. And the longer it takes, the less well they're going to do. Really, too. Yeah. The book mm. is bird stories. Jeff Norman. Uh, I do think it's a landmark publication. Beautiful thing. You can go to Potton and Burton and um, have a look at it. Get yourself a copy if it's your kind of thing. But it's um, it's one of those don't get published very often things. So, congratulations. Well done, yeah. Jeff. Can I just say too, Graham? I, I just um, I, I, I as you can see in it, I got a lot of um, contemporary artists or a number to, yeah. to contribute, and um, they were just amazing. You know, every single I didn't get a single no from anyone and I wasn't offering money or anything and I just had the most wonderful reactions from our artists and they're just so good some of those pictures I, I sort of felt very humble actually when you know dealing with them it was fantastic nice one okay mm. glad you included mm. that thank you very much yeah. Jeff yeah. Norman all the best with your publication okay alright thanks Ryan this recording has been made to preserve a resemblance to the call of the Huya one of our native birds, which is believed extinct. We are fortunate to have in the studio Mr. Henry Hamana, who accompanied Mr. Gregor McGregor to Aurangi about the year 1909. The male bird calls with the following notes. female answers. After this, the male replies. New Zealand is yours. Go there now.